Between publishing and dentistry, I've been super busy lately. So it's been an entire month since my last episode. I apologize to our regular listeners for that. Fortunately, I've still had enough time to play plenty of new-to-me games that I'm eager to share. And what better way to end this podcast drought than with an all Kinesia episode? That's right. Today, I'm going to be sharing my first impressions of eight new-to-me Reiner Kinesia games. These games include No Mercy, Gang of Dice, Treasures of Nakbi, Great Wall of China, Hekmek Am Kartanek, Aristocracy, Marshmallow Tests, and The Quest for El Dorado, The Dangers and Muiska Expansion. My name is Nick Murray, and you are listening to the Bitewing Games Podcast. So we're going to start things off with No Mercy, which I have two plays of, both at four players. Korean publisher Mandu Games caught wind that I was a Kinesia fan, and they generously sent me their three recent Kinesia publications to explore and share my thoughts on. The first of these is No Mercy, which is another push-your-luck game by The Good Doctor. Interestingly, 2022's No Mercy has a lengthy history as it is a retitled edition of 2021's Hit, by French publisher Pixie Games, which itself is a slightly modified design based on 2021's Family Inc. by Austrian publisher Piatnik, which is itself a re-implementation of 2007's Cheeky Monkey, which has seen many editions over the years. It's unclear whether No Mercy, also known as Hit, will become easily available for folks in North America, as it does not have English rules in the box, although you can find a fan translation on BoardGameGeek. That's a bit of a shame because I find myself preferring No Mercy over Family Inc. Although, who knows, it's possible that Cheeky Monkey is actually the best of the bunch. I already shared my full thoughts on Family Inc. And while I enjoy trying the game, No Mercy has now rendered it obsolete. Most notably, No Mercy does not come packaged in a disgustingly massive and airy box. Rather, it comes in an appropriately small card box for a fittingly fun filler. I won't go into the full gameplay here because it's so similar to how I explained Family Inc., but the gameplay differences are notable as I find myself preferring them as well. With Family Inc., you only steal from other players' cued stashes when you conclude your turn without busting. With No Mercy, you must decide to steal mid-turn, the moment you reveal a matching card. And sometimes it's better to not steal from others if you wish to draw a second or third card without the chance of busting. There's also no race to 100 points, or awarding of swingy 50-point diamonds. Rather, you'll simply play through the entire deck and add up your collected cards at the end. At any rate, if you have the opportunity to track down a copy of No Mercy or Hit without much trouble, it's certainly a quick and lively crowd-pleaser. Players will enjoy the freedom of expressing themselves by playing it safe and collecting a few cards per turn, or pushing their luck deeper into the draw pile to hopefully nab lucrative stacks from vulnerable opponents. But at the end of the day, it's mostly just a luck fest. The important thing is that it knows its limits and stays well within those boundaries. So I give a fair prognosis to No Mercy. And if you're wondering where to acquire this game, I'm told that BoardGameGeek will soon be selling No Mercy on their website. Next up, Gang of Dice, which I also have two plays of at four players. Unlike No Mercy or the next Mandu Games title, Treasures of Nakbi, 
Gang of Dice is a Kinesia design with no history that I'm aware of. It's also admittedly the Mandu game that I was most looking forward to beforehand, precisely because it is the most unique of the bunch. If I had to give this design a nickname, it would be Ego Yahtzee. And I love a push-your-luck game that puts players' egos front and center. The challenge takes place over 12 rounds of players selecting any number of their hidden supply to roll, and attempting to roll the highest sum with the winner claiming all of the dice that were invested in rolls that round. The player with the most dice at the end of the game wins. The catch is that you must accomplish this without exploding. Each round, a new card is revealed that displays a dangerous combination or threshold that players must avoid. There are two types of cards, immediate explosions and end-of-turn bombs. If an immediate explosion displays a threshold of 10+, then that means a player explodes the moment they roll a dice total of 10 or higher. If an end-of-turn bomb displays two odds, then a player explodes if their final result has two or more odd numbers among all of their dice. Other possibilities include rolling a 4 or 5, rolling a pair, rolling three different number results, and so on. While the differences are outwardly subtle, they feel surprisingly unique when deciding how many dice to roll and knowing whether there is the risk of an immediate explosion or not. Every player gets one turn to roll their dice. Exploded dice end up in the middle, and the highest roll that did not explode takes all of the dice that were rolled, whether they exploded or not. You're always allowed to choose as many dice as you wish to start your roll. Then you have three Yahtzee-style rolls to get the best result, unless you explode immediately. That decision of how many dice to roll is layered with plenty of nuance on its own. More dice means you'll have more options to work with, yet you'll also have a higher risk of exploding and losing those extra dice than if you had chosen less. Wise players will know when to cut their losses in a round and roll the obligatory one die rather than risk it big to try to win. But the one trademark Knizian wrinkle that really seals the deal for Gang of Dice is the fact that the sixth side of every die displays a boss rather than a six. This boss face has no value, ever, meaning it will never trigger an explosion. Only the other faces, one through five, can do that. Furthermore, ties are fairly common, and the tiebreaker always goes in favor of whoever rolled more dice from their supply. So a sum of 9 from 3 dice, you know, a 4, 5, and a boss, always beats out a sum of 9 from 2 dice. Boss faces are great to roll in terms of explosion avoidance and tiebreakers, yet they contribute nothing to your chances of having the highest sum and outright winning the round. So do you keep a boss result from your first or second roll, or re-roll it? Oh, it's always a tough choice. Turn order plays a key role as well. The winner of one round starts the next and they have the pressure of setting the bar and hoping nobody else can clear it. If you're last to play, then you know exactly what result you need to win. All you have to do is muster the guts to shoot for it and hope it doesn't blow up in your face. Although it only supports 2-4 to four players, Gang of Dice seems poised to be my favorite Kinesia Dice game since games like Rapido and Llama Dice, and a worthy addition to his noteworthy Push Your Luck titles. I give a good prognosis to Gang of Dice. And just like No Mercy, this looks like one you should be able to acquire through Board Game Geek relatively soon. The final Mandu Games and Kinesia Games collaboration is Treasures of Nakbi, which I have one play of, and it is yet another design with a storied past. This one is actually a re-implementation of Ravensburger's Drakenhort from 2015. Notably, Ravensburger never brought this title to North America despite it being a solid family game. 
But I suppose that doesn't matter anymore because Treasures of Nakbi, first, does include English rules, second, will hopefully make its way to the US, and third, features some interesting new twists to the gameplay. These gameplay additions are not only important for one-upping Drakenhort, but they also serve to differentiate the experience further from the similar shared incentive Kinesia racing game known as Winner's Circle, another Kinesia betting game that I love to play. Both of these designs take the infamous roll-to-move mechanism and make it engaging and enjoyable by giving players the freedom to decide which figure to move with that die result. In both games, each figure can only be moved once per round, usually. So players aren't just assigning their high rolls to their favorite horse or explorer, but they're also bullying the easiest targets with their low rolls to lock them up for the rest of the round. In Winter Circle, this experience is much more strategic and calculating. Horses are racing around a track, and their individual cards display the odds of their movement. Players make bets based on the horse cards and starting positions, and then they strive to support the horses they bet on while sabotaging the rest. Treasures of Nakbi streamlines and simplifies the strategy of Winner's Circle by simply dealing one secret card to each player that displays the three explorers they are invested in. The goal is to help these explorers race to stay ahead of the competition as they run from the dreaded guardian who ever closes in on them. With no bets being made and no probabilities to analyze, this game offers a much more family-friendly experience while still keeping things interesting with the game board interactions along the way. The movement in Nakbi comes with plenty of opportunities for leapfrogging, bonuses, and traps that players must navigate. Rolling a 4 might actually allow you to move an explorer more than 4 spaces, because you only count empty spaces, meaning you'll skip a space occupied by another explorer. Furthermore, you might decide to move one of the 7 explorers that you aren't invested in, even with a high roll, particularly if they stop on a space that earns you a bonus point token. Or if you have a beef with a particular explorer and manage to get the right roll, you can send them right into a trap which resets them to the very back of the race, three spaces in front of the Guardian. Like Mario Kart, there is a lot of thrillingly chaotic rubber banding to be had here. But regardless of who you move or where they land, the moved explorer always gets placed on the dark side of the space they occupy. This means they cannot be moved again, unless you roll a 2. A 2 lets you move any explorer two spaces, even one that is currently in darkness. And there are two faces of the die that can give you this result. But where most of the dice results only let you move explorers still in the light, you'll eventually reach a point where all explorers are in darkness. This triggers the end of the round, where explorers are pushed into the light side of their space and the guardian plays catch up in an attempt to catch a straggler. Most rounds do result in a new victim, because that guardian is a quick one, and that explorer comes off the board and will score invested players the lowest number of points still available. If your explorer survives longer during the race, or if it escapes the dungeon, then it will score more points in the end. But the dungeon is only the first half of the game, as another race takes place on the jungle side of the board. This is where Treasures of Nakbi stands out from its predecessor. Where Drakenhort's second map merely rearranged the number and placement of traps, Nakbi brings in three additional modules that add to the wacky theme and experience. We, of course, opted to include all three of these. One corner of the board has the dreaded river that acts as a double darkness, meaning it takes an extra round for explorers who stop there to even be able to move again, unless a two is rolled, which will land that explorer in a trap and set them back near the Guardian, for better or worse. Another space has a shortcut that goes both ways, 
Meaning an explorer that stops there has to take this passage, which will set them further behind or further ahead and potentially even swap spots with another explorer. Finally, another corner of the board is a one-time landmine, or more accurately, a snake pit that instantly eliminates that explorer and every other explorer currently in that column. It's pretty wild. Despite how much luck is involved in terms of which explorers everyone is randomly invested in, because it's possible for multiple players to be supporting one explorer while only one or even no players support another. There's also the fact that how many points you get from a face-down bonus token can range from 0 to 3, and what dice result you roll on each turn. Reiner still manages to cram the game with plenty of clever considerations between who to move with your die results, what type of space they will land on, and which explorers are most important to help or hurt across the two races. The luck-driven features here not only add to the silliness, but they also make the game more competitive and approachable for younger or more casual players. Treasures of Nakbi presents yet another compelling case for why Reiner Knizia is my most trusted designer. He understands what makes games enjoyable and consistently injects them with the right blend of dramatic luck and meaningful decisions for the game's intended audience. In this case, I now have a shoots and ladders style of game that is actually good and perfect for any combination of family, friends, gamers, and non-gamers, which is why I give a good prognosis to Treasures of Nakbi. And again, this is another one that you can probably acquire soon through Board Game Geek. That's at least what publisher Man New Games told me. Of course, if you're from Korea or somewhere close to there, then it's probably going to be a lot easier for you to acquire just from retailers. Next, we're going to talk about the Great Wall of China, which I have one play of. You know what's surprising? According to Board Game Geek, there is only one game in existence that goes by the title Great Wall of China. You know what's less surprising? That game is designed by Reiner Knizia. <laughs> Here we have a classic Kinesia card game from 2006 that honestly feels like a card game version of Samurai. Only Samurai got its own official card game three years later, which is even more faithful to the source material. Great Wall also mimics the auctions, hand management, and card ability chaos of Condottier, but it admittedly does so in a more reserved and balanced manner. Like Samurai, players have identical supplies that are individually shuffled and enter each hand in a unique order. The key is to make the most of your current opportunities while you wait for the right cards to come at hopefully the best times. If you can manage to sort of keep track of what other players have left to play, then that can offer huge advantages as well. Players are competing to earn point tokens by contributing to various segments of wall. If you start your turn as the single largest contributor in a particular row, then you get to claim a point token in that row. But there's a catch. That point token goes onto one of your cards in that row and weakens your contributions by the value of the points on the token, meaning it's much harder to claim the second token if you've greedily snatched up a high one. The weakening of the first player and rewarding of the second player is an important incentive that often convinces folks to give up on the first dibs prize and wait for the remaining one. The row will be cleared out and refreshed, and both point tokens will finally be earned if the second player can maintain their new position at the top until their next turn. When one player commits big to a row, all hope is not lost for others. A small subset of your card supply will let you play a dragon to swallow up and replace an opponent card. Another will erase the values of all cards in a row and transform the competition into most cards played. And another card type will ramp up in value as you play more of that type. But where your special cards are rare, it's best to be cautious as you decide where and when to commit these. Some rows offer a polarizing pair of points, like 8 
versus one, which drives players to get entrenched in an epic battle of unyielding wills that quickly drains their hand of cards. You can always spend one or both actions of your turn drawing a card, but then you might be letting opponents slip away with easy points. Other rows may offer a very uniform pair of points like four and four, where a pair of players can more easily and efficiently give way for one to claim the first token so the other can secure the second. There's plenty of tactical nuance here that I'm impressed and engage during play. I'm just not sure that Great Wall of China does quite enough to stand out from Samurai and Condottier and those kind of games. Most critically, it's not quite fast enough to justify playing this over more meaty strategic games that also play in under an hour. So I give a fair prognosis to Great Wall of China. This is one that you can probably most easily acquire through the Board Game Geek market, where folks are selling their used copies. Next, let's talk about Hekmek Am Kartanek, which I have two plays of, at four and five players. Reiner Kinesia loves to revisit his strongest brands with designs that put a spin on what makes them shine. It's smart from a business perspective as these brands already have a built-in following. And it's fun from a fan's perspective as you get to see a designer riff on a concept. Yet, as I've mentioned with other lines like Azul, Superskill Pinball, and Keyflower, they also run the risk of intimidating newcomers or burning out fans. Last month, I explored the roll and write version of Lost Cities, which was enjoyable even if it didn't quite live up to the original game's tension. I also own the original Llama and newer Llama Dice, and I actually strongly prefer Llama Dice, as well as Modern Art and Modern Art Card Game, although the card game didn't land for us, as well as Battle Line, also known as Shotentan 1, and Shotentan 2. And of course, I plan to acquire everything in the My City line, including the upcoming Roll and Write and Big Box sequel, My Island. Furthermore, I own a couple standalone or combinable experiences from the Quest for El Dorado line. Then Reiner has sibling designs like Tigris and Euphrates and Yellow and Yangtze, or Ingenious and Axio, or pseudo-sibling designs like Through the Desert and Blue Lagoon, Samurai and Babylonia, and so on. And none of this accounts for when publishers retheme or revitalize an older design, where Reiner has reworked the rules, such as our upcoming Zuvatis, which was originally Quo Vatis. Existing fans of Kinesia already have a lot to keep up with, but new fans find themselves quickly falling down a bottomless rabbit hole of over 600 published games. No matter how you slice it, that's a lot to chew on. As a fan and explorer of Kinesia games, I've taken it upon myself to play every noteworthy and acquirable title in his ludography, if you didn't notice by this podcast yet, and I've been having a blast doing it. Hopefully my shared impressions serve to guide newcomers to some reliable classics while uncovering hidden gems for Kinesia files. So where does the 2021 release, Hekmek Am Kartanek, fit into all of this? Well, it's a spin-off design of Reiner's popular dice game Picomino, also known as Hekmek. But this game does not have a single die in the box. It's also arguably a hidden gem from among the at least 12 solid games that he put out in 2021 alone. Part of the reason it's hidden is that the US market has yet to see Hekmek M. Kartanek localized in our market. Yet it's still easy enough to obtain from a European Amazon website, and the rulebook has an English translation. I've enjoyed Picomino Duel well enough, and actually think it's one of Reiner's better Yahtzee-style or push-your-luck games. Even if it can sometimes overstay its welcome, and tends to be best at lower player counts like 2-4. The thing that interested me about Hekmek M. Kartanek is that it replaces the push-your-luck dice rolling with hand management card auctions, similar to some of my favorite Kinesia auctioning games, 
and unlike its predecessor, it plays best at four to six players. In fact, Hekmek M. Kardinek feels like a blend of Taj Mahal's Game of Chicken card auctions, also found in Beowulf and Karate Tamati, Picomino's Domino Claiming and Stealing, and Four Sales Auction Rounds. Just like in Picomino, each decision you make comes down to whether to keep going or call it quits. And if you keep going, then you have to select a different number from the numbers you've already committed to. But in a shift that many hobbyist gamers will probably appreciate, rather than rolling dice to find out if you succeed or bust, you're simply deciding which cards to play from your hand. You still need one or more worms among your played cards in order to qualify for the best prizes of the round. But you'll also get a tile regardless of whether you raise your bid or pass. You don't even have to bid higher than the previous player. And often you don't even want to. And there's a few reasons for that. For one thing, the moment you pass out of a round is the moment you get to draw two cards to replenish your hand. But the last player to pass draws nothing. For another thing, just like in Picomino, you can steal the top tile from an opponent if you pass when the sum of your cards equals the value of the domino on top of that opponent's stack. Once everybody passes, the display of new dominoes is awarded out where the highest bidder gets the best tile, the second highest bidder gets the second best tile, and so on. But if you pass during a round and don't have a worm among your played cards, then you immediately have to take the worst tile in the display and you don't get a steal from another player, even if your played sum equals their displayed domino. As always, there are subtle layers here to the strategies, like passing early to immediately take a domino. Not because that new domino is good, but because it covers up and protects another domino that you can see your opponents are scheming to steal. Or you can bluff your early card plays with weak numbers to give your opponents a false sense of security so they pass early on only for you to drop a fat stack of fives and exceed their bid. Just like many other Kinesia designs, Hekmek M. Kartanek is so sneakily clever and surprisingly solid that I've simply given up on trying to understand how he does it. At this point, I'm just along for the enjoyable ride. I give a good prognosis to Hekmek M. Kartanek. For those in North America, probably the easiest place you can acquire this from is BoardGameBliss.com. They're a cool Canadian retailer. Next, let's talk about Aristocracy, which I have two plays of at four players. Aristocracy is an interesting title in Reiner Knizia's ludography. It was released in 2019 by publisher Tasty Mintrel Games, one of their last titles to be released before they went bankrupt. Obviously and unfortunately, Aristocracy wasn't a big enough release to save that sinking ship. Although I am a major Kinesia fan, this big box game has been living in the shadows of his other more successful or more interesting releases during that same time period, including 2018's Blue Lagoon and Yellow and Yangtze, 2019's Babylonia and Tejuto, and 2020's My City, among others. And unfortunately, Aristocracy doesn't do enough to justify its escape from the shadows of those giants. On top of that, I'm not a huge fan of the art style for Aristocracy, where it makes it look like a 15-year-old game rather than a 3-year-old game. Despite the fact that the publisher is now extinct, the game itself was actually pretty easy to find online. And while it's quickly been forgotten by the masses, I was curious to give it a try. I've come to find that even a subpar Kinesia tends to be more engaging and worthwhile than many of the hottest flash-in-the-pan games in our cult of the new industry. Aristocracy is smooth and simple as expected, at least after setup. 
First, you must painstakingly lay out a bunch of square land tiles face down on the 111 spaces of the board. Then put out 59 more fish and point tiles in their designated spaces. Then separate the 120 player markers into the four colors. And then you are ready to get into the smooth and simple gameplay. On your turn, you'll merely reveal three land tiles and then select any face-up land tile to activate. There are three types of land tiles. Resources, buildings, and royalty. And those types are further split into subcategories, making for eight unique tiles total. Whatever face-up tile you select will activate all the tiles of that subgroup. If it's a resource like wood that you've chosen, then you'll collect all of the face-up wood from the board. If it's a building like the castle you've selected, then you'll cover all of the face-up castles with your player tokens. If it's the king or queen that you've selected, then you'll remove all of that chosen royalty from the board and place your markers onto a number of empty spaces equal to the tiles you've removed. In other words, gather up resources to collect sets and score points, or play your markers onto the board to establish connections and race to earn points. There are enough ways to score points here, like building a line that connects cities, placing enough markers in one district, placing a marker in all districts, collecting lots of resources and sets of resources, that you'll always have a decent strategy to work toward. Whether that strategy pans out or not is going to heavily depend on how the tiles are revealed and how tempting those tiles are to your opponents. In our four-player games, Aristocracy was a roller coaster of delights and frustrations. Delights when a player revealed the perfect tiles for them to immediately claim on their turn. Frustrations when opponents relentlessly steal resources and claim royalty and block paths right out from under your nose. It seems that at four players, you rarely end up getting what you want, and anything you pass on in one turn is all but guaranteed to be long gone by your next turn. It's often hard to know which tiles to flip up and feel a strong sense of cleverness from this decision. With there being eight different tile types on the board, you'll usually flip three entirely different tiles that infrequently reveal the type you were hoping for. Players will also feel strongly incentivized to claim whatever tile type shows the most currently face up on their turn. Now this can easily lead to the impression of inconsequential decisions for gamers who are used to less luck and more control in their games. But in reality, Aristocracy is a game of strong short-term tactics laced with a pinch of long-term strategies. Sometimes it's better to ignore snatching up corn for now and instead claim a building that blocks an opponent from making a connection that scores them 6 or more points. Thankfully, the scoring also encourages players to circle back to a consistent strategy rather than aimlessly chase the tile trends. Yet the location and timing of the reveal tiles can absolutely favor one player over another. If Aristocracy was much longer than its 45 minute playtime, then that amount of luck would be a major issue. But as it is, this one gets by just fine as an enjoyable and approachable little game. Its biggest weakness is the fact that it competes in the same sphere as the much cheaper and more strategic and easier to set up Blue Lagoon, which likewise features route building, set collection, various scoring strategies, and simple rules. Even if it's not a bad game, Aristocracy is fighting a losing battle against the likes of Blue Lagoon. Heck, this battle was lost before it even started. I give a fair prognosis to Aristocracy. There's lots of places you can acquire this. I recommend you go to boardgameatlas.com, type in Aristocracy if you're interested in finding an affordable option for you. Moving on, let's talk about Marshmallow Test, which I have two plays of at four and five players. The famous Marshmallow Test is a funny theme for a game. Even funnier is Reiner Kinesia's video about this test. That man is a genius and a goof. 
But perhaps the funniest of all is the part that they leave out. The part that they don't tell you about in the child-focused marshmallow experiments. I'm referring to the part where the child who waits the longest to eat their marshmallow doesn't get any at all. Indeed, this experiment is not just a lesson that good things come to those who wait. It's also a warning that those who don't seize the moment may watch the golden opportunities of life pass them by. Well, perhaps the experiment doesn't teach that, but Reiner Kinesia's marshmallow test certainly does. Here you'll find a bog-standard trick-taking game. Five suits or colors, each with cards ranging from 1 through 12. One player leads a trick, the others follow suit, the highest takes the trick, and leads the next one. If opponents can't follow suit, they can play a different suit, either a worthless card or a trump suit card. Like I said, bog standard. But it wouldn't be a Kinesia game if it didn't have a few tiny twists with massive ripple effects. The object of the game is to earn marshmallows. The first person to 20 wins the game. You'll only earn marshmallows in a round if you can manage to win three tricks. At that moment, you'll earn marshmallows equal to the number of tricks that your opponents have won and you'll be out for the rest of the round. So of course you want to be the last player standing in a round, right? Of course not. You see the round immediately ends when all but one player has gone out, and that player gets nothing. You lose, good day sir. As compensation, they do get to choose the trump suit of the next round after seeing their new hand. But the real prize of the round is being the last person to earn marshmallows, as you'll also be the one who earns the most. A couple of late round finishes will see you well on your way to the victorious 20 marshmallows. So this dynamic brings the first magical touch to the experience. One of nail-biting decisions for when to sit back and let a trick pass you by, and when to throw down your best cards. Time your wins wrong, and you may find that you're too early to earn anything good, or too late to catch up to your opponents and earn anything at all. But the second magical touch comes from the game-ending objective. Race to 20 marshmallows and win instantly, even mid-round. Once players are two or three hands into the game, the entire aura changes as the table's objective transforms from earn the most marshmallows for myself to stop the winning player from reaching 20. Suddenly, the losing players form an unspoken alliance as they force the lead player to win all three tricks early, gaining them little to no marshmallows, or keeping them from winning three tricks at all, gaining them absolutely nothing. Where so many modern trick-taking games bend over backwards with wonky rules or entire board games grafted onto them, all in an effort to try and stand out, Marshmallow Test simply tosses a couple simple ingredients into the tried and true recipe. But those key ingredients successfully add a tactical tension to each hand and a refreshing arc to each game. Marshmallow Test likely won't become anybody's all-time favorite card game or even trick-taker. It's too reserved for that. But it's a strong case and a compelling argument which proves that Reiner Knizia is one of the most talented and versatile designers of all time. So I give a fair prognosis to Marshmallow Test. This is one you can find on Amazon most easily. That's where I got it. And finally, we're going to end things with the hot new expansion to the quest for El Dorado called Dangers and Moiska, which I have two plays of at two and four players. Reiner Knizia isn't really known for designing expansions to his existing games. On the contrary, he's known for keeping things pared down and streamlined. And even though publishers push him to include advanced variants or additional modules to a design, he'll usually say that he prefers to play the simplest version of the game. I suppose that rather than pile more complication onto a pure design, his go-to philosophy has been to tweak the core concept itself and turn that into a new game. That's why we've ended up with sibling games like Tigris and Euphrates and Yolen Yangtze, or Shatan Taten and Shatan Taten 2 or My City and My Island, 
or Ingenious, and Axio, and so on and so forth. Despite all of that, the Quest for Eldorado has been an irresistible design that Dr. Kinesia just can't leave alone. Yet, if there's any game in his entire ludography that lends itself best to expansion content, it undoubtedly has to be this one. This game features all the key ingredients for expansion content, such as deck building with the more the merrier card options, a modular map with an increasing variety of map tiles, and massive sales, universal acclaim, and undying enthusiasm from fans. Although North American publisher Ravensburger has sadly decided to stick with the status quo on this game, meaning no updated art, no more expansions, and so on, we English speakers are fortunate that publisher Lautapalette.fi also has an English edition and even more love for the design. Not only did Lautapalette update the production with larger cards and glorious Vincent Tutorate art, but they're also keeping us well-fed with more expansion content. Dangers and Moiska features two main modules that can be individually or collectively added into the El Dorado experience. One of them is a variety of map tiles called Dangers that can be positioned adjacent to or overlapping the terrain. Another is a small deck of eight cards known as the Moiska Tribe. The Dangers tiles include five types that can be implemented into your map in any assortment or combination. First, you've got the dangerous spaces, which are found across many of these tiles and display a skull symbol, where players are allowed to pass through these spaces, but never end their turn on them. This element is interesting as it simultaneously prevents blocking on these spaces and forces players to rush through them in a single turn or go around them if they are unable to. Second, you've got the mountains, which include a narrow pass surrounded by impassable mountain terrain, allowing players to create their own shortcuts or bottlenecks if they wish. The catch is that this narrow pass also displays a skull, which means you can't end your turn there to outright block others. Then you've got the rivers, lakes, and water vortex tiles. These massively up the water spaces of your map, putting a greater emphasis on paddle cards. But more than that, the rivers and vortex feature arrows that push your explorer one space further if you complete a card's movement on them. So traveling along these spaces feels a lot like the moving walkways at the airport, where you are moving faster and further than the steps you are taking. It's quite fun to string together a four-space movement with a couple single paddle cards. Then there's the crocodile-infested swamps. And these are perhaps the most potent tiles of the bunch. They are essentially wild spaces, but like a swamp, they bog down your forward momentum. Where rubble spaces from the base game require you to discard a certain number of cards, swamp spaces require you to play any card with an exactly matching value. So to enter a space with one crocodile, you must play a single machete, paddle, or coin card. To enter a three crocodile space, you must play a triple machete, paddle, or coin card. Those crocodiles are very particular about their quantities. If you plan to traverse the swamps, then it's important to be prepared with a deck that has a variety of values. Trashing all of your ones or ignoring twos or threes can be detrimental to your success. Finally, there are shrines and artifacts. And they are a bit of a nod to the pick up and deliver expand alone game, The Quest for Eldorado, The Golden Temples. Here, four shrines are placed out along the route to Eldorado. And players must stop at each one and sacrifice, meaning trash, a matching colored card in order to acquire the artifact. You must collect all four artifacts before you can enter the gate to Eldorado and win the game. Rather than be a simple race to the finish line, this forces players to stop at four checkpoints along the way and be prepared with the right colored card in hand when they reach each checkpoint. While our first plays of this were as simple as placing shrines beside or on top of the linear racetrack, I'm now realizing that this allows for maps that feature branching paths that players must travel down and backtrack from. 
And that's really the crux of the Modular Dangers expansion. It gives you loads more tools for adding refreshing challenges, obstacles, and routes to the map. My only complaint is that this toolbox doesn't come with any suggested setups. Players with a basic level of game design sensibilities should be able to figure out where these dangers will fit best. But I could easily see some folks arranging maps that result in painfully slow segments, blatantly obvious strategies, or both. On the other hand, the absence of suggested maps in this expansion means that I've finally discovered that part of the fun of Quest for Eldorado is in the setup itself, embracing your inner game designer and concocting a thrilling journey for everyone to enjoy. But new space types and increased map customizability aren't the only killer addition that this expansion offers. Those of you who have played Eldorado before, have you ever had the experience where you draw a super strong card from your deck at the most inopportune moments? Like when the triple paddle in your hand is useless because you are completely surrounded by jungles and villages. Yeah, I've had that experience too. Well, let me introduce you to the Moiska cards. The Moiska tribe is a deck of eight cards that gets placed next to the market board. Two cards are drawn from the top and displayed beside the market, increasing your card purchase options from six to eight. And a purchased Moiska card is immediately replaced in the market with another until they're all gone. These cards don't look too different from your standard market options. There's a single wild, a double wild, three machetes, three paddles, two coins, so on. Yet they cost more money to purchase compared to the matching market cards. What gives? I'll tell you what gives. Moiska cards are bankable cards. When you draw one into your hand, you can either play it and discard it like normal, or you can set it aside and save it for a future turn, where it doesn't take up space in your hand. This allows you to call upon a stored Moiska card at precisely the moment you need it most, rather than hope to draw it into your hand on the right turn. Players are allowed to store two Moiska cards at a time, and these cards add yet another layer of strategy to the experience. While the first expansion to Eldorado, called Heroes and Hexes, is one that I've held out on due to its mixed reception, Dangers and Moiska seems poised to be much more universally praised. It cleverly blends unique ideas and fresh variety without losing the purity of the deck-building race experience. In other words, it's Reiner Knizia doing what he does best, riffing on the brilliant formula while keeping it smooth and streamlined. I give an excellent prognosis to the quest for Eldorado, Dangers, and Moiska. And again, keep in mind, this expansion is not compatible with the North American edition by Ravensburger of the Quest for Eldorado. If you want to play this, you're going to have to get the European edition from Lata Palette. The best place to acquire the European edition of the Quest for Eldorado and this new expansion is directly from the publisher, lautapalette.fi. And there you have it. My first impressions of eight Kenizia games, all of which I enjoyed, just some of them a bit more than others. So if you don't know yet, next year Bytewing Games will be launching two big box Knizia games via crowdfunding. The first of these will be Zoo Vadis, which is launching in January. It's going to be epic, we can't wait to share more. So if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the Bytewing Games newsletter. You can follow the link in the description of this podcast to do that, and we will keep you up to date on our Knizia projects. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Nick Murray, and you've been listening to the Bytewing Games podcast. 